All right, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me back there in the cheap seats? You can't? Okay. All right. All right, so let's go and get started. Um, as you can see by the title of the slide, um, we're talking about historical theology today. Um, you know, the class is actually systematic theology, which is almost thinking of uh, categorical to or yeah, uh, theological topics broken up into categories. You know, so you can have the 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 study of, of Christ or the study of salvation or the study of sin, you know, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and so a few weeks ago, uh, Ken got into a little bit of biblical theology where he talked about the, the idea of the Messiah and followed the thread of the Messiah through, through a part of the Old Testament. And then today, uh, and, and then the week after that, I decided it would be good to sh demonstrate a little bit of historical theology. Well, again, like I, I think I mentioned this last week, I thought I was going to be able to kind of just do that in a week, but now we're on our third week of, of this. And so I, I think it's been a really good, really good conversation. Um, and so historical theology is where you follow a particular doctrine or a particular category kind of through the, the history of the church, and you look at at what people believed at different times. Whereas church history is sort of what happened, you can almost think of historical theology as almost why it happened. Um, but more specifically, I tend to think of it as, as what people were thinking at, at, different, at different periods. And so what we did was we chose Christology, or the person of Christ, and then followed that all the way from kind of the late first century all the way through, and then today we're going to probably hit, you know, we're, well, we're going to be in the modern era um, by the end of the discussion. Now, one of the, the values of, of historical theology is if you think about the, the, the first few centuries of, of the Christian faith, it started out as a relatively, I'll call it a relatively simple faith, and I don't, don't mean that in a bad way. It just meant that people believed things, but they had not been, they hadn't thought through every angle, you know, and that's okay. You know, by and large, you, you come to faith, you believe, you know, you trust Christ for your, your salvation, um, and then in, in, you're a Christian, and you're a part of the, the Christian church, and you uh, you'll, lo you'll love your brothers and sisters and you'll, you'll, you'll worship God, you know? And for a lot of people, that's kind of the end of the story. But what happens, what happened, began to happen in the first century, late first century, is you had these, these various ideas begin to creep into the church. And these ideas, sometimes they were okay, but a lot of times they were wrong. A lot of times they were blasphemous of God. A lot of times they were you know, blasphemous of, of Christ himself. They might deny that he was a human being or deny that he was, he was divine. And so as these, these heresies crept up, the, the church, the God-honoring church, had to think through whether or not these ideas were true and then respond to them. And so one of the things that we say is that orthodoxy, right thinking about God, orthodoxy... Um, is uh, follows or or was was forged um, from heresy. Now it doesn't mean that we that 
heresy became orthodoxy, but what it means is that when we looked at heresy, we, you know, the, the church as a whole said, okay, that is wrong. You know, we had never thought of that angle before, but, but that is wrong. And so th this be, is right. And so we deny this, and therefore we affirm this, okay? And so over centuries, um, again, orthodoxy was forged in the, in the wars with, with heresy, okay? So as we go through these different, um, these different heresies, uh, we've gone probably through about six or seven of them so far, as we go through them, the value of learning these ancient heresies is that it, it, it provides a corrective to our own thinking. Because a lot of times, we may begin to creep into one of these heresies, okay, in, in our own private thinking. And it might even be something that we don't discuss with other people. It might just be something that just subconsciously we, we think. And by studying these and why they're wrong, it helps us to adjust our, adjust our thinking, okay? And it also um, helps us as the church universal, um, you know, believers all over, all over the world to have a, a common faith, you know, common to the extent that, um, that it's possible. So let's pray and then we'll get started. We're going to do hopefully a very quick review and then um, we'll get into the medieval or the Middle Ages, uh, the Reformation, and then the, the modern era. Father, once again, we love you. Um, we love you and we thank you um, for the, the grace that you've provided, um, not only in terms of our salvation, as wonderful as that is, but just in the, in the grace that you've provided and just getting us into this nice, warm, dry room. Father, thank you for the opportunity, the, the, just the privilege of coming together and, and studying about you and learning about you and, and, and talking about you, of which there is no, no greater, greater subject. Father, we love you, we trust you, help us to glorify you in everything that we think and say and do. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, quick review. All right, so very quickly, um, I'm going to blow through these, so if I go too fast or you have a question, feel, feel free to speak up. So when we talk about Christ, there's, there's two um, kind of areas of, of doctrine, two major doctrines. One is what we call Christology, and that gets into the, the person and the work of Christ, okay? And the other one is, is of course, the, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so these two things are distinct, but, you know, very, very closely related in the, in the person of Christ. And so when we think about the Trinity, a lot of times it's, you know, the idea of the Trinity can be very, very scary because we can't get our, our minds fully around how God can be one and three at the same time. And so, what, um, and so there's all sorts of language that is thrown out there and all sorts of scary concepts and stuff. But in reality, if you look in the Bible, the Bible boils down, uh, we, we can boil down the, the concept or the, the doctrine of the, tr of the Trinity to three very, very biblical principles. Okay? So Tom, do you want to tell me what the first one is? There is one God. There is one God. Okay. And I think we can all, all remember that, right? Um, what's the second principle? Do you remember? Tom, anybody? God exists eternally as three distinct persons. You're nailing it. Remember the fourth one? I'm sorry, fourth. Third one? 
Okay. Anybody? Okay. Each person is fully, completely, and eternally God. Okay. Now, if you think through each one of those, think about passages um, in the Bible that to support each each of the three of those. I mean, there is one God is is kind of a no brainer. Um, there is one God is is kind of a no brainer. That's you know, you can go to Deuter- Deuteronomy six if you um, you know, hero Israel, the Lord God, the Lord is one. Um, the second one, God exists eternally as three distinct persons. You know, what you can do there is just look at all the passages. Like, so for example, um, uh, the, uh, in Matthew 28, when God, uh, I'm sorry, when Jesus is, uh, you know, given the great commission, he says, what does he say? Baptize them in what? The name of Son, Holy Spirit, three different entities basically or three different three different persons you can look at the the son praying to the the father you can look at the father blessing the son you can look at this that the at jesus sending the spirit that sort of thing and so there's you know just tons of passages where it shows a distinction between the father the son and the holy spirit and each person is fully completely and eternally god you look at the deity of christ you can look at the you know um different different topics throughout um, throughout scripture Four principles of Christology. So we talk, we've talked about these the last couple of weeks. One, Jesus is fully, completely, uh, fully and completely divine. And that upper right-hand corner is a little, just a little mental picture that you can form in your mind to help, help remember these four. Jesus is fully, completely, uh, fully and completely divine. That's, that's just going to be represented by a D. Jesus is fully and completely human. The human and divine natures are distinct and without confusion, so that line going between, between the, the H and the D. And then the human and divine natures are completely uh, united in one person. Both those first three uh, points that I showed with uh, the Trinity and these four that I'm showing with, with the person of Christ, either one of them, if you have a thought about the Trinity or about Christ, and you kind of measure it against these concepts, you're and, and, and it fits; it's consistent with them. Then you're probably in good in good shape, okay. Um, but if you begin to think kind of outside of those, then then it indicates that there's a problem. All right. So the first heresy that we talked about. Any questions so far? No. Okay. Um, so the first heresy that we talked about was called Docetism, and what Docetism said was it, it, uh, it comes from a word that means, means to seem or to appear. And the idea was that Jesus wasn't really, uh, wasn't really human. He, he didn't actually you know, die on the cross. Um, he didn't actually even uh, minister to the people in, in Israel. Um, he was uh, more of an apparition than anything. And the problem with that, of course, is if Jesus is not human, um, is not fully human, then he can't be our representative. And then also, additionally, he can't sympathize, sympathize with us in our, in our weakness. But that was the, fir- the, the first heresy. The second one was almost the opposite. It was kind of a Jewish heresy that probably came um, out of the Judaizers. And it's called Ebion, Ebion, Ebionism. Or Ebionism. Uh, and it denied um, the fact that Jesus is, is God. It took him as being a strictly human um, Messiah um, who, who, who 
who died, uh, but he's, he's, he's not divine. Then you have modalism, which is more of a Trinitarian heresy, and it's the idea that God is not, uh, yeah, that God is not, uh, he's three distinct persons. Uh, well, he's not three distinct persons. He's one person um, where he, it, sometimes he'll behave as the Father, sometimes he'll behave as the Son or the Holy Spirit, depending on kind of, I guess, the, um, what, what's needed at that particular time. Dynamic monarchianism, otherwise known as adoptionism, said that Jesus was a created being, and then at his baptism, the power of God came upon him, and he was like promoted up to, to be a um, God-ish, demigod sort of, sort of person. Um, the notorious one, most notorious, is probably um, Arius. And because of Arius um, and his, his teachings, um, we found that the Council of Nicaea was convened in 325 AD, and that's where we kind of have probably the most orthodox statement of, of uh, the Trinity um, in history. And then it was revised slightly to talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit in 381, and that's the Council of Constantinople. Yes, ma'am. Did the atheists deny the resurrection? Yes. So, a new round of heresies. Um, so, the most basic, ortho, most basic Orthodox teaching, or sorry, most basic Orthodox understanding of the Trinity has not changed since the Nicene slash Constantinople Creed. So, it's remained intact um, for you know sixteen centuries, I guess. But. Um, while both the humanity and deity of Jesus had been clearly affirmed, questions arose concerning the relationship between the two natures and how uh, the two natures can exist in one person. So it's almost like the heresies got more sophisticated. They got into a, a more um, esoteric problem. So Apollinarianism said that um, uh, the way these two natures work together is that uh, Jesus had... Um, uh, he had human emotions. Uh, he was divine, and he had human emotions, but he did not have a human will. He said he had a divine will. And so the idea there is, is that, well, if he didn't have a human will, then he's, not, um, then, then he's not fully human. Now, on one level, you can kind of sympathize with Apollinarius and what he's trying to do there is maintain the sinlessness of, of, of Jesus. But what he's trying to do is explain the sinless, sinless, sinlessness of Jesus. And um, he ends up, you know, sacrificing something else. Bless you. Um, that is the humanity of Christ. Nestorianism um, divided the... Um, the, the, the human and the divine aspects of, of Christ. Uh, and and the, the name there, the reason it's in green rather than red is those are the good guys. Those are the ones that wrote against it. If it's in red, it's bad. If it's in green, it's good. It's Christmas. So, All right, so Nestorianism uh, divided the human and uh, the divine natures. Um, and where that was motivated was uh, Nestorius was hearing people referring to Mary as the Theotokos or the God-bearer. 
And that didn't sound right to him. He had a problem with that. And it is a little, it's, it's a tough one, um, all the baggage that kind of goes with it. And so what he was trying to say is Mary carried the Messiah. Um, he, uh, she carried the, um, the human. She did not, you know, she didn't, did not give birth to, to God. And so no, God is eternal. Mary is a created being. But um, Cyril of Alexandria and the Orthodox Church said you cannot divide um, uh, the natures of Christ in, in that way. It's too unhealthy. And then there's Eutychianism, where uh, Eutyches said that um, the, the human nature was swallowed up or absorbed by the divine nature. So then you have the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that spoke against all those heresies. And the fourth ecumenical, that's Chalcedon, uh, was convened in 451 AD and composed a new statement of faith, the Chalcedonian Creed. It embraced the two natures, one person formula, which became the standard way of expressing the, the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, hypostatic means personal. So personal union um, of the two natures in one person. Um, of the divine and human natures in the one person, Christ. Hypostatic union is the kind of the, the technical term that, that theologians use. They explicitly denied three earlier heresies, Arianism, Polynarianism, and Historianism. There's the, the diagram again. And you can see how each one, I showed this last week, so I'm gonna skip through it because I'm running behind again. All right, Middle Ages, wow, new stuff. Um, okay, any questions so far? Sorry about that. Um, okay, Middle Ages. So the Middle Ages witnessed little in terms of the development of Christology following the ecumenical councils, and, and that's good, right? Because they were in a, they were in a good spot there, I think. Um, Anselm um, was a, a very influential theologian. Um, was he early 12th century, late 11th century, I think. Um, Anselm reasoned about the, the nature of Jesus and why God became God. We're going to talk about him in just a second. Beginning from his doctrine of salvation, Anselm affirmed the traditional belief in the God-man. And then Thomas Aquinas um, addressed the communication of properties between human and divine natures. So he addressed the idea of, is, you know, uh, Jesus the human, is he um, omnipotent or omniscient and, or omnipresent in all of these things? So he kind of talked about that a little bit. Yes, yes, sir. Are we going to talk about uh, atonement with the evangelists? No. That'll be a, if we talk about that, it'll be in salvation. So. All right, so now let's talk about Anselm. So starting from a view of, of sin as robbing God of his honor, so we're going to have a question you know, coming up here in just a second. So starting from a view of sin as robbing God of his honor and holding the, that humanity cannot adequately satisfy God in restoring his honor, Anselm concluded that the only one who can save humanity is one who is both God and man. Now, he's not appealing to Scripture. What he's doing is he's coming up with reasonable argumentation from an observation, and then he's reaching a conclusion. So he says, uh, no one can pay the satisfaction, the satisfaction of, of uh, robbing God's honor except God, and no one ought to pay except a man. It is necessary that a God-man should pay it. 
Redemption required one who was both fully divine and fully human. So he said, given that it's necessary for a God-man to be found in whom the wholeness of both natures is kept intact, it is no less necessary for these two natures to combine as wholes in one person, in the same way as the body and the rational soul coalesce into one human being. For otherwise, it cannot come about that one and the same person may, may be perfect God and perfect man. I like the statement. Everything he's saying is good. Okay, it's kind of chewy, right? And maybe it takes a time or two to go through it, but it's kind of chewy. Um, but I like what he's saying here, right? It's consistent with Chalcedon. But notice that Anselm reasoned beginning with his understanding of sin. Okay? So what do you think of a purely rational argument for the dual nature of Christ that is without appealing to Scripture? What do you think? Yes. I think it's a good Okay. Knows them intimately and the, and the details of what's going on with their case and sin. Okay. But uh, it's a good representation of that to have Christ be our mediator as both God and man. Okay. Um, but really, the question though is: is what do you think of the conclusions that he drew that are without appealing to Scripture? Were you going to say something? No. Okay. Reasoning, of, reasoning is the foundation of truth. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So I recognize what you mean by without appealing to Scripture. Mm -hmm. It's kind of what Anselm's known for, right? But right. Still, he's dealing with concepts. He does appeal to Scripture, like the existence of God and right. of Christ mm -hmm. and of sin or of some, some need to be, to be perfect. So I, I would say that Anselm appeals less to scripture uh -huh. than his predecessors, but that he doesn't make his argument without any appeal to scripture. So why God became man is a dialogue um, that he wrote in dialogue form, just like you know the, the Greeks used to do. And um, as far as I can tell, I can't find any, any scripture at all in there. He doesn't reference or quote a scripture, uh -huh. but he presumes, I think, a certain level of acceptance of scripture in his audience, right? right? Because he, for example, assumes the existence of God. I, I haven't read in a while, but does yeah. he make an, a previous argument for the existence of God before he? Yeah, that's a, that would be a different work. Yeah. Okay. So it's okay. A different work. Yeah. So why God became man specifically? So he presumes that there is a God at that point, but then why God became man? So he's talking about Christ. Okay. So, so how are the conclusions of such an argument bounded? And what I mean by that is he starts off with God being robbed of his, of his, his glory, okay? And then he, he um, reasons his way to the only way to satisfy that is through um, having one person that is both fully God and fully human, a very, very uh, orthodox position. But the problem is what authority is he pointing to reason. reason. What he's doing is he's taking, he's 
landing on the right conclusion, and I think to, to Hannah's point, Anselm knew scripture. So he knew where he wanted to go. He knew where he was going to end up. But what he did is he reasoned his way there. Okay? And, and he wrote an entire, about 100 pages, on this idea of why God became man. Okay? The problem is it's a matter of authority. He's not pointing to scripture. He's pointing to, to human, human reason. And so a purely rational argument so is pure, so that's getting ahead of myself. So the idea here is, is what I'm concerned about is we can make all kinds of rational arguments. But if those rational arguments are not based on Scripture or the good and necessary consequences of Scripture, then who's to say that I can't change my rational argumentation and come up with a different conclusion? Aren't the good and necessary consequences of Scripture? Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's without, without that, yeah. Yes, they are, but their foundation is the scripture. So what I'm saying is, is he, he's introducing almost to like, I'll say hypothetically a heathen, which is the term back then, right? An unbeliever um, or someone who wasn't familiar with, with Christ. He, he walks it through them, but he, he never appeals to, to scripture. And so the idea there is, is it's a matter of authority. Where do you get your authority? And if we begin to take our authority as being reason or rationality purely without pointing to Scripture, without the use of Scripture, then we can change our conclusions and Scripture is not putting bounds on that. I don't yes. know that I would agree with that. Because okay. if, you're, if you're actually reasoning rightly, okay. your like, true reason that is right. purely logically grounded... But can you reason rightly? The noetic effects of, effects of sin? Perfectly no. Right. So, so that's the idea. He, he could... But that's what, what you're saying is, is <coughs> if, if the grounding is reason, mm -hmm. well, then we're talking about it in the perfect, in the ideal. Um, well, the idea of God... Well, the idea of the Trinity is not something that you can land on with reason. And it's, in, in, in reality, it's, it's kind of irrational in a way. Yeah. And the same with the dual natures of Christ. Kind of irrational in a way. So, let me go to the next point, and then we'll come back, because I think that might clarify kind of where, where I'm going. Okay. So is purely rational argumentation ever legitimate in the context of theology, broad, you know, kind of broadly speaking? Um, whoops. Um, Yes, it is. What can we know without appealing to Scripture concerning, I'll say, spiritual things? There is a God. There is a God. Okay? And as a matter of fact, even Scripture tells us that we can know that without Scripture. Right? Turn to Romans 1, verses 18 through 23, and the existence, the divine attributes, the eternal power of God is is clearly revealed in the things that are made. But we suppress that in what? Unrighteousness. What else? Go ahead. What's that? The condemnation of humans. Condemnation of humans? Punishment of it being death. Punishment being death. Okay. There's a little bit of, uh, well, I almost said the, the word I don't want to say right now. Uh, I'll say that, uh, let, let's go with uh, sinful. We, there's a 
God's law is written on our hearts, but we don't always follow God's law, right? And we're convicted by that. And so there is our sinful nature can also be revealed without scripture. There's something terribly wrong. That's, that's revealed. Those are theological ideas that you can see in what? General revelation. That's what we're talking about. Scripture is called what kind of revelation? Special revelation. So what general revelation can do is give you enough information to convict you, or you might even say condemn you, but you have to have special revelation in order to be, be reconciled with God, right? So I guess what I'm getting at here is we can use rational argumentation for theological things, but not things that have to be revealed by special revelation. Then going back to what Stephen said, yes, once you have scripture, what we call good and necessary consequences are the, the rational argumentation, that the reasoning through that. And that's perfectly valid as well. But scripture is always puts boundaries on what it is that we believe and say and think. Yes, sir? Sure. Sounds like what you're saying is that it would be dangerous for someone to study only Anselm because you're going to get a philosophical argument for the reason of God and why God became man right. without specific revelation. Good. And therefore you'd fall short of, of understanding your relationship with God and sin and your need for a Savior. Good. I, I like that. Okay. Yeah. I think it's clearer than what I was saying. But it's also more than just Anselm. It's just rational argumentation. Uh, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philo- philosophizing. Yeah. Yes, sir. When we get worse. Yes. You're going to Colossians? No, okay, go ahead. Um, Martin Luther said, unless I'm convinced by scripture yeah. or reason, yeah. but wherever scripture and reason speak to a topic, you go with scripture. Good. Good. That's a great point. That's very, very well said. I was trying to make it worse, though. Oh, oh I, th- I thought it was great. Uh, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, Another thing you uh-huh. asked, uh, what can we know besides um, special revelation? Uh, special revelation? Yeah, in general, what, what, um, what, what can we know like about God or, right. or what? Yeah. So in Romans, when Paul talks about mm-hmm. um, people that without the law, mm-hmm. There's, they're condemned without the law. But then he speaks of people who would be judged knowing the law. Yeah. And still, you know, going yeah. against it. Yeah. Would that count? Um, I think it's consistent with, with what we were with what we were seeing because. So to somebody, I always think of uh, the dude in the middle of Australia, the Aborigine in the middle of Australia that's never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus or anything like that. Right. There are certain things that he can know, without. Um, without the Bible or without um, hearing the gospel. One is that there is a God, and he's very powerful, good, et cetera, and so forth. But then also um, that he is a, a sinner, that he um, does things that he's not supposed to do, right? Okay. That's, that would be a Romans 2 thing. So Romans 1 and 2 are amazing in, when it comes to general revelation. Okay. But then I know you say just enough to condemn. Uh-huh. But, you know, when he says... So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Is he speaking of Gentile believers there? 
I think so. Um, it, it's been been a bit since I've I've looked at that. So yeah. No, that's okay. That's good. Good questions. Yes. I think one thing we always have to approach theology in a in a humble nature. Absolutely. Uh, because we have to realize our logic system is limited. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of spiritual things is limited. Absolutely. Until someone can explain to me how infinity exists, how yeah, yeah, to the end of the universe, right. and there's still more universe there. Right. I can't. I can't understand these right, things. I right. have to acknowledge that I have limitations. Right, absolutely. I think we always have to preach it in spirit of humility. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I think I mentioned this last week, but as Calvin would say, you can't take the infinite and put it in the finite. So the human mind cannot comprehend the God, right? So hear me now. I'm not saying that reason is a bad thing. Reason is a very good thing. Reason is something that true reason is, is consistent with the way God operates the, the world. But, you know, like we were talking about a second ago, we're not capable of, of perfect reason. And so if we start, if we don't have God putting bounds on the way we think, then we can begin with a premise and then take that argument and it can go almost in any direction. Cool. All right. There's no way we're finishing today. I'm sorry. Um, are we good on Anselm? Okay. So your issue with Anselm then is that if our premise isn't scripture, it adds one more element that can be questioned. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's no boundaries on what it is, that, the conclusions that we have. Does that make sense? So, because he, he could have probably reasoned his way into there's got to be three or something. He probably could have found some kind of reason, reasoning to, to land on something other than the orthodox Chalcedonian Creed. But again, he knew where he needed to go because he, he believed in Chalcedon. But it's just the way he got there I struggle with. All right, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas denied that the divine nature of Jesus... Uh, oh, good guy here, okay. I think the way I wrote this, it makes it sound like he's doing something bad, but what, this is all good stuff. So Aquinas denied that the divine nature of Jesus Christ somehow became human so that it was weak and tired, hungry and thirsty and mortal. Okay. Um, he also denied that the human nature somehow became divine so that it was um, all-powerful, eternal, and unchangeable. Okay. So however, while the two natures maintain their respective properties, so on the divine side, you have um, omnipotent, um, omnipresent, etc. Um, you know, on the human side, you have, you know, finite and, you know, body and spirit, etc. Um, however, while the two natures maintain their respective properties, it is right to say, for example, that they crucified the Lord of glory, meaning they crucified God. Okay although the divine nature did not die. Mary is the God-bearer, even though she only contributed to the human nature of Jesus. Okay? Now, this is getting pretty esoteric here. So, so while maintaining Orthodox Christology, this communication of properties gets contentious later on. Okay? Does that make sense? So the communication of properties between one and the other. Okay. So now we get to the Reformation. This is where it gets contentious. Now, 
we're, 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 I, I'm going to mention some things, but we're not going to get deep on, into them because um, some of the stuff, the, the, the real contention, uh, we're going to talk about in the, con in the context of the Lord's Supper. So that'll be probably January when we do ecclesiology or the study of the church. We're going to do the Lord's Supper, and we're going to talk about some of these concepts. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to, I don't know, put a rock in your shoe. I'm probably going to raise a bunch of questions, but we're not going to answer them today. So, All right, from his understanding of the Lord's Supper, Martin Luther held that the communication of properties held to the communication of properties in a strict sense. So what did Martin Luther believe about the Lord's Supper? Yes, ma'am. I had someone once tell me, if you take the presence of, of Jesus, the presence of God, and the elements of the Lord's Supper, and you throw every preposition of the German language at it, that's what Martin Luther believed. Okay. So sometimes it's okay. in, around, with, and through, right. essentially... As many propositions as you want to throw out, yeah. you're probably still Lutheran. That's probably really well said, right? And there's a little bit of historical context there. So let's talk about the Catholics for a minute. I should, probably should have asked that question first. So the Roman Catholic view of um, the Lord's Supper is called what? Transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. And what that means is that piece of bread or wafer or cracker, whatever you want to call it, actually becomes the body of Christ. Okay. It's not a representation or anything like that. It actually becomes the body of Christ. Okay. So Martin Luther didn't buy that, but he. One of the things I like about that interpretation is it takes Jesus's words very, very seriously. Okay. Maybe too woodenly, but very, very seriously, because what did he say? This is my body. Now, I take that as a metaphor, but when people want to be, or clearly it's a metaphor, but when people want to be, take what he's saying seriously, you know, sometimes we can guard against um, saying, okay, that's a metaphor. And so the Roman Catholic Church said, no, this is his body. It, is, it actually changes its substance, transubstantiation into his body. And so Luther said, no, it's not his body. But what he liked about it was the presence of Christ being in the Lord's Supper. And so what he said was, okay, that, that little that morsel of bread is not actually Christ's body. But like Hannah said, you can apply every preposition to Christ's body. It's in it, around it, on top of it, below it, throughout it, you know, where, whatever you want to do. It's it's like, it's just this far short of actually being Christ's body, okay? And so what happens is the next guy we're going to talk about is, is Ulrich Zwingli. I love that name. Um, Zwingli said um, that he wasn't so much worried about Christ being in, present in the supper. He, was, he took more of what's called a memorial view. He said the supper... Um, represents um, um, looking back and remembering what Christ had done for us, okay? And by and large, that's the position that we, that we take at, at, um, at Trinity. Um, but again, what I love about Luther is he, he had a very high view of Scripture and a very high view of 
Christ being actually in the Lord's Supper, being present in the, uh, not in the elements, but around the elements, et cetera, and so forth. Does it make sense? Okay. So this goes beyond the Lord's Supper and gets into Christology, okay? Um, he said, specifically, the human body of Christ received the divine property of omnipresence from its union with his divine nature. So when, the human, when his body um, had union, hypostatic union with his divine nature, his body became um, omnipresent. So it's present everywhere. Ulrich Zwingli denied the omnipresence of Christ's body. He said, according to its proper essence, the body of Christ is truly and naturally seated at the right hand of the Father. It cannot therefore be present in the same way in the, in the supper. See, and that's why he believed in the supper in the way that, that he did. Okay? So what happens is these two guys um, uh, met, and it was a, a famous um, confrontation that they had where they agreed, I forget on how many points. Do you remember how many points? It was a ton of points. They agreed on all of them except this one. And what people tend to say is that they just agree, disagreed on something about the Lord's Supper, which is important, but in reality, it was more than the Lord's Supper. It was Christology. How do the human and divine natures of Christ um, interact with one another? How does that work out? And they took two very different views on that, okay? And that's still a dispute even today, and it's, I think, the fundamental difference between Reformed and Lutheran theologies, okay? Any questions? No? Is that too out there for you? What do you guys think? Or is that worth, worth talking about? Yeah? Yeah. What's that? Yeah, we, we will when we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, modern era. We might actually finish today. Um, maybe. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Question? No? Okay, okay. All right. Yes, sir. Against what? Against taking uh, the Last Supper metaphorically. Is that, is that true? Uh, against it to, to solidify the way that they did? Or was it more about the structure of the church? No, I, I, yeah, I think that, that's a good point. I think, no, I think we'll look at this, uh, or I'll study this a little bit more as we go into, the, into January. But um, no, I don't know, I don't know necessarily that the, the the Roman Catholic um, doctrine of what they would call Eucharist, um, the transubstantiation, I don't know there was a reaction against something. I think it's just what they, what they taught. Yeah. So Godfried Tom Tomasius. Okay. So Godfried Tomasius uh, reasoned that the Son could not have manifested... Uh, I'm sorry, could not have maintained his full divinity during the incarnation. So he's looking at scripture, and again, he's, he's use, using his noggin. And he's saying that uh, reason, uh, 
the, the son could not have maintained his full divinity during the incarnation. It just, th- this is where we, reason can lead us astray when we begin to talk about theology because how does the creator enter his creation? That doesn't make sense. We can't get our minds around it. And so what he's saying is, no, that didn't happen. Couldn't have happened. He said that the only way for a true incarnation to take place was if the son gave himself over into the form of human limitation, which involved a divine self-emptying called kenosis. Okay, so the idea is when he, during his ministry, during his time on on earth, um, Jesus gave himself over from deity over and became strictly human. He gave up his, his divinity. He defined kenosis as the exchange of the one form of existence for the other. Christ emptied himself of the one and assumed the other. That is during the incarnation. So why would someone believe something like this? Yes, sir. It kind of says, says that in Philippians? Okay. Anybody else? Right. You know, and, uh, and so, and he does that in more than one instance, uh, Fred. So the argument, I think, it's easy for him to make that, right. that he's yeah. appealing to God in, in yep. several instances. So if he's appealing to God, yes. in essence, isn't he appealing to uh, himself? So I think the argument is kind of an easy one to make. Yeah, and okay. And understand why he made that. Well, good, good. Um, Good, good point, Steve. And, and also, you can look at like John 17, where he... Did everybody hear what he said? Yeah? Okay. So then um, you can look at like John 17, where Jesus is, is praying to the Father. And he said, you know, you'll love me before the foundation of the earth and all that stuff. And so it's a beautiful prayer. But he's praying to the Father. And so you can see where someone can say, oh, you know what? I, I guess he gave up his divinity, you know? So it's not a unreasonable, you know, it's not an unreasonable position. I mean, depending on what you mean by gave up and right. what you mean by did not maintain right. full divinity. Like right. He, he did not maintain his, uh, I mean, if you take the doctrine of omnipresence as God, it's literally everywhere at all places. Right. He clearly wasn't everywhere. The sun wasn't everywhere at all times. Right, because he was in human flesh, bound by space. Yeah, and th- and that's where um, the, the the Lutherans would disagree with you. So <laughs> um, now, how that works out, I'm not exactly sure. But yeah, we'll, we will talk about that. Um, but the idea here is is the word that he seizes on is kenosis, which, as Stephen mentioned, that's actually in and used in Philippians two. So we can turn over to Philippians two if you would like. We're going to take a few minutes to go through it. This is one of my favorite passages concerning the, the, the deity of Christ. So we're going to take a few minutes to go through it. Um, and the idea here is that Paul is preaching a sermon, and you can think of it as you know, a sermon on humility. And the idea of humility in Paul's world, and what, what, the way he uses it, is it's the idea of having certain um, rights, privileges, but giving up those rights and privileges in the service of others. So for him, that, that is what humility, the, the hallmark of, of, of humility is. 
And so what he's, he's, he's trying to convince or trying to tell the, the church in Philippi that we need to be more humble. We need to more, be more you know, servants of one another. And then he uses Christ as the ultimate example. So we're going to just start at the beginning of uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is uh, yours in Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. It was not something, it was not something that he wasn't, and he was grasping for. The idea here is it's something that he, was, he had, and he was not holding on to it. He was letting it go. Okay? So, did not count, um, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. So, he, he, let, that, he let that go. But emptied himself, there's that word kenosis. So the word that you see up on the screen is actually a, a biblical word. Um, I'm sorry, I keep losing my place. Verse 7, but emptied himself um, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now the first thing I want to mention here is, this is an argument for the deity of Christ. If Jesus was a created being, so I, let me put this a different way. I can point to Stephen or BJ or whoever, and I can say, would it be humble of them, would it be humble of you to not count, not say that you're equal with God? No. Hold, trying to make yourself equal of, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, recognizing that you're not equal with God that you are below God in every way, shape, and form is, is not a matter of humility. It's just a matter of reality, okay? It's not something that you're, you're letting go of. It's something that just was never yours to begin with. So the idea here is, is that if Jesus is a created being, then the equality with God, not grasping the quality of God, is not something that would be an act of humility on his part. Does it make sense? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. So, so that's, that, that's the first thought. But he's giving up this, um, um, this equality with God. He's giving up what? His rights and privileges as God. He's taking the form of a servant and dying a, a, a tragic and, and painful death that he totally did not deserve. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this idea of kenosis here um, is, you know, this guy, Tamasias, takes it as Jesus is um, essentially not... Oops. Somebody grab me a paper. Can you grab me a paper towel? No, thank you. See, that's why we can't have nice things. Um, but, but if we look at 
other passages where it talks about Christ, you know, being um, the high priest, being um, sinless, then those are, um, thank you. It's funny, wow, there it is. Yeah, we're good. It was just a little bit. Thank you. Close my lid. So, um, sorry. So, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So anyway, so the bottom line is, is Jesus did not um, give up his, he did not stop being Christ. I'm sorry, he did not stop being God when he was, was on earth. Now, I remember 15 years ago, probably 15 years ago, I was actually teaching a class and I said something that alluded to something like this. And um, uh, a guy, I remember his name was Ryan, um, mentioned, he's like, dude, you, you can't say that. That's, that's heresy, right? And so I went and did a little research. And sure enough, um, you know, it was, it was a, I held a heretical view of who Christ was. Um, and so this is a heresy that I can kind of, I hate to say identify with, but I can understand why people would believe something like this, okay? And what it does is it demonstrates the danger of just keeping your, your private Bible study private, okay? We, we have to interact with one another. We have to interact with pastors and teachers and, and other folks. We have to, to um, we have to Again, going back to something I've been you know, saying this whole thing is we need to read other things because those things can serve as correctives to the way that we interpret Scripture. Because I never dreamed that, that I had a heretical view of Christ. But it wasn't until I actually studied that particular problem, I'm like, oh my goodness, it, it really is. So are we good? Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. His, his rights and privileges, his glory, he emptied himself of that. Um, because, you know, if you think about it, you know, what did Jesus look like on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He was glowing and all of that. So, okay, so you got, you know, Jesus walking through Nazareth and he's glowing. You know, who, who's going to try to crucify the guy, you know? So, all right. And then... Okay, Frederick Schleiermacher, um, despite his name, he's a, he's a bad guy. Frederick Schleiermacher uh, reinterpreted religion in terms of, of the feeling. Okay, so what he said is religion is absolute, the feeling of absolute dependence on the world spirit. I'll let that sink in, the world spirit, um, which he called God. So the world spirit, so it's, this is one of those mystical things, right? Um, You've heard of pantheism? That's more or less what we're talking about here. It's the spirit of the world. Um, Schleiermacher presented Jesus as the ideal in whom this God consciousness reached its apex. He also revised the sinlessness of Christ as the gradual yet complete submission of his self-consciousness to his God consciousness. Okay. 
people actually believe this stuff. So there is a word for this nonsense. It's called mysticism. Okay, And we're going to go ahead and stop there. Um, because this gets into a lot of popular and modern day things that we believe about Jesus and I don't, I don't want to, that the world believes about Jesus and I don't want to rush through that. Okay, so hey, guess what? We're going to have a fourth week. So, um, questions or comments? Yeah? I know the, uh, when we were talking about, you know, Anselm and a couple of these things, they're, it's really, it's, it's, it's academic, but it's, um, you know, depending on how you interact with people, who you evangelize to, especially if you evangelize to, say, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or folks like that, um, or even Muslims, then this stuff can become more and more important. Okay? And definitely if you talk to anybody that's you know, studied philosophy or anything like that. So, cool. All right? So we'll get considerably more practical next week, and um, I think it'll be more fun next week, too. So, cool. Um, Stephen, you want to close us? Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are kind. I thank you for our church family and willingness to gather and worship you. Thank you for Fred and his uh, diligence to think through these things, present them in a way that we can understand and, and think about who you are. And I ask that you would guard our hearts and minds and let us worship you in spirit and truth today. Always let your will be done. In your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, sir.